Thanks for tuning in and joining us today for another episode of the Mops Confession. Uh, today, I'm thrilled and excited to bring on uh, Scott Brinker, who's the VP Platform and Ecosystems at, uh, or Platform Ecosystem rather, at HubSpot, uh, and also the editor of uh, Chief Martech, uh, which probably a lot of the folks on the line know. Uh, so we're really, really delighted to have you on board. I'm sure the chat is going to have a ton of questions, uh, all things related to either HubSpot or the Chief Martech reports. Um, but just before we get started, uh, we wanted to do a tiny little bit of housekeeping. Um, so for those who are here for the first time, please do use the chat. Feel free to ask questions in there, interact with uh, fellow marketers who are in the chat. There's also a little tab for questions. Uh, please don't be shy. Go in and ask questions. What we'll typically do is as the questions come in, um, if they fit into the flow of the conversation that we're having, we'll kind of pull them out and uh, ask Scott all the awesome questions that you folks will have. Uh, otherwise, we'll have you know the reminder, uh, the remainder, sorry, um, addressed in a Q&A session um, towards the end. Um, but yeah, we're as I said, really, really excited, Scott, to to have you here. Uh, thanks a ton for joining. And I guess to kick things off, uh, one of the things that we were talking about uh, right before uh, we joined was kind of what led you to get started with uh, Chief Martech. And I thought it was a very interesting and relevant story to uh, the topic today of marketing operations. So if you don't mind sharing uh, that little bit of your past and, and what led you here, that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me here, Francis. Uh, yeah. Okay. So my first confession is like, how did I get into this mess? Um, uh, yeah. So as uh, we were chatting earlier, um, you know, back in the days of web 1.0, um, I was uh, leading the technology team at a web development agency. We would get hired actually by fairly large uh, companies like, you know, Citrix and Siemens, uh, you know, to build out their solutions uh, on the web. And uh, it was usually the marketing department that would hire us, but it was my job leading the technology implementation team for the agency to then go and talk to the IT department of that client. So we could actually figure out how we connect this to their systems and make it work and all those, you know, actual details. Um, and so it was doing that, you know, like sneaker diplomacy between the marketing department and the IT department at these companies that two things were really clear. One is they were not speaking the same language. Like there was just this gulf of understanding between them. But at the same time, like the actual things that needed to happen for the company and the way it was increasingly engaging with its audience on the web, that these two teams are going to have to work a lot more closely together. And so just of you know having one foot in the tech world and one foot in the marketing world i just got really fascinated by you know coming across more and more of those hybrid profiles like myself who are like yeah no no listen we get the technology but we can also talk to the marketing team and you know like uh, there actually someday even be people whose whole profession would be marketing technology and operations in the marketing department imagine that so that's yeah. where the blog started and, and here we are now. Uh, and I guess like a, a question around that. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting the you know, this idea of having marketers who need things from the IT team and not being able necessarily to communicate and get that information. I guess, um, how, how much do you think that problem has evolved? Have we come like much closer to solving it? Has the you know, problem kind of evolved and morphed into something new? Um, yeah, I'm just curious on, on your take around this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, 
I'll, I'll give my answers, but in some ways, my answers are like an amalgamation of the aggregate. And the truth is that, yeah, this still has high variance from one company to another. There's some companies where the relationship between IT and marketing is incredibly sophisticated and collaborative. And then there's other firms that, yeah, are still very early in their journey. Um, but I actually think, yeah, in many ways, marketing for the past 10 years, on average, I think actually leaped far ahead. You know, like the original problem was both IT wasn't necessarily able to serve marketing the things it want, wanted, but marketing wasn't even really clear on what it is they wanted or how that would actually work, you know? And I think just out of necessity being the mother of invention, you know, over the past 10 years, uh, most marketing departments, a lot of marketing departments have actually gotten pretty sophisticated about what it is they actually want to do online, what sort of digital capabilities they want to put in place. Um, and so interestingly, I think you and a number of companies saw the marketing department get much more sophisticated about those things than necessarily their counterparts in IT were even you know, fully aware of or appreciated. What's interesting now is I think the landscape is shifting again, uh, you know, partly here because of just that acceleration of digital transformation, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, COVID uh, triggered um, is actually you're seeing this overall digital maturity of organizations rise up quite a bit. And I think actually we're now starting to see cases where it's time for a little bit of the reverse to happen here where, you know, um, it, it's time to now think about marketing reintegrating further into more of a company-wide uh, digital stack. So. But again, your mileage may vary. It's very situational dependent. <laughs> yeah, your experience may vary, may differ from this. Yeah, uh, and I guess that's. I mean, I think it's a good segue also into um, this idea that you know we we might look at having a marketing stack that integrates better with the rest of the the company stack. And so when you look at the kind of the landscape of Martech that you typically put together in um, in like this massive map that I, I hope everyone on the call knows about. Um, there, there's, I mean, there's always consolidation and expansion within markets. And I'm curious to get your take on, do you see different areas like more likely to consolidate? Is there, you know, are we still going to see that map expand? You know, can we expect to have 20,000 companies listed next year and maybe 53 years from now? Um, I mean, for the sake of the people helping you put it together, I hope not, but uh, I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah, it is really interesting dynamics. I think there's maybe two questions we can address there. One is just, yeah, what is that distribution uh, in the landscape? Because that that graphic I produced, while it's, it's a fun slide, it actually does not do a very good job at all of representing the structure of the industry. That if you were to take all those companies and you were to order them uh, by either like say their revenue or their market cap or you know customer install base or things like that. I mean, pretty much any of those metrics would all correlate. And you'd see it as a long tail, you know, where at the head of the tail there's some very large companies, you know, that are arguably highly consolidated for this, right? I mean, like, you know, Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle, HubSpot, you know, um, uh, and then as you start to go down the tail, you know, I mean, you still have some incredibly large category leaders, you know, uh, within like, you know, social media marketing, you know, obviously still an ad tech, you know, uh, but then as you go further down, you get more and more of these specialized niche companies and they don't all have the same motivation or intention. There's some who they're very small and niche today, but their ambition is to become 
the next head of the tail uh, leader. And some of them will. Uh, I mean, that's just the nature of the technology industry. But there's also plenty that, yeah, their idea of success is not necessarily to be a $10 billion company. Like even, you know, for a small company that like creates a product for a particular niche that, you know, their customers love them, you know, they're making millions of dollars from that. I mean, there's lots of other places we've seen in the software world where those are considered tremendous successes. And I think it's important to recognize yeah, in MarTech, you just have, you know, a lot of companies in that long tail. Now, they come, they go, um, you know, at least over the past 10 years, you know, the rate of churn has not been nearly as fast as the rate of new entrants uh, into the market. I mean, just by the laws of physics, at some point that, that hits a limit. Um, you know, I don't know that we've quite hit it yet, but somewhere there becomes an equilibrium and I wouldn't all be surprised if the total number, you know, starts to, you know, uh, shrink. There's almost a different question of like, okay, well then across all that landscape, where do you see that, you know, evolution happening the most? And that to me has always been a fascinating question because the answer is it's almost everywhere. In fact, if, if I was, if I didn't know it, if I wasn't looking at the data, if I wasn't looking at it empirically, I would say, oh, well, let's be logical. Let's take the oldest category in MarTech, which I think sufficiently would be like the, you know, web platform CMS category, right? I mean, that we had CMS vendors, you know, in 1996. So clearly we've had like 25 years. If there's a category that should have just consolidated and said, yep, this is how we're going to do it. No more room for any, any innovation here. Thank you very much. But yeah, my goodness, you look at like, you know, the web space and over the past few years in particular, like the innovation that's happening around everything with like Jamstack and like, you know, headless, uh, you know, uh, uh, web, headless uh, commerce. You know, I mean, if so many innovators, uh, you know, that have entered into the space, I'm like, okay, well, if the oldest category in the landscape has this opportunity to reinvent itself significantly, yeah, like why would we think like any other category on that landscape would somehow be protected, you know, from some new innovation that might be happening over the next few years? Right. No, and I think it's interesting because you know when you there's always this this bias on the in the market right, and when you're talking to um, there's kind of supply and demand, I guess, almost like from a from a money perspective, right, where there's companies that are looking to, to provide value to customers and they're going to find a niche that not isn't necessarily exploited by one of the bigger um, kind of leaders in the category and they create this solution for a niche. And one of the interesting things there is when you talk to venture capitalists, like one of the things that really scares them away from the MarTech space is that a lot of companies are really great at capturing that niche and being really deep into it, but then they struggle to expand beyond that kind of like 10, 15 million run rate where then you now have to go and eat some of the other niches that are around you where there's already someone like some kind of incumbent there. And so, and this is something that we've seen, you know, time and time again, I think it's, it, it's hard to see, uh, you know, big, at least VC successes in, in the MarTech space. And I think to your point, right, that's where like the metrics are different, right? There are like amazing companies that are bootstrapped, you know, like 10 million in revenue is not something to be, um, you know, ashamed of it. It's actually incredible to, to get to, but I think it does create this, um, this thing of like, when you, you know, you enter into the VC space and VC backed companies, like capping at 10 million is kind of a, a death zone for startups. And so 
that does have an impact on marketing ops folks where, you know, you might, you want to invest into technologies, but there's kind of, there's this fear um, that you might buy into a platform that a year from now is going to be defunct or is no longer going to be innovating because they're not going to get funding or that kind of stuff. And so one of the questions that I think, you know, I hear a lot of people ask, and this happens to us from time to time when we'll have, you know, the procurement team says, oh, what's your funding? Who are the VCs that are backing you? What's your run rate? Blah, blah, blah. All that kind of stuff. They kind of just get some sense of security that the company will, you know, survive the you know, the term of the contract at least. And so I guess from your perspective, what would you recommend, um, you know, marketing ops folks think about when it comes to bringing in a platform that seems to be, you know, well-suited for their niche, but, you know, might not be, you know, a category leader five years from now. Like how, what are the kind of components that they should think about and look for in these different uh, vendors? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> some meaty questions there. Um, so I think it's worth noting that not all MarTech is equal or should be evaluated, you know, by the same criteria. Uh, and there's a, a lot of different cuts we could take of it. But one of the simplest ones is, is I think it's worth distinguishing between the central platforms, this basically the foundation of your MarTech stack, you know, and then sort of specialist apps, you know, that serve more niche, you know, or specific team needs on top of that platform and what the integration looks like uh, between them. And the reason why this is um, you know, relevant is like at the platform level, I think you should have very high standards of like stability uh, of the company you're betting on. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the head of the tail gets a bit of that flywheel effect is, you know, uh, whichever whichever platform you pick in that, uh, you know, in the head, you may like them at times, not like them at times, but you're pretty certain that, you know, they're gonna be around for a while. Um, but that being said, like, you know, when you start heading out to more of these innovative solutions, as long as the risk reward trade-off of what are we getting from this tool, and if this tool were to go away, or for that matter, even a simpler explanation of we tried this tool for a year and we ultimately decided we didn't like it as much you know, as something else, nonetheless, you have to be prepared for that tool being removed from the stack at some point too. And I don't know, I mean, let's, let's get very specific. I mean, like, um, uh, you know, I don't know, I'll, I'll pick a tool like, you know, Descript, uh, you know, for editing, uh, you know, podcasts. Um, love, love Descript, by the way. Um, I think they will be one of the category leaders, but like you can kind of imagine like if I adopt a script, adopt Descript, you know, for editing my podcast, and either a year from now I decide, nah, I think there's a better tool I can use instead of Descript, or Descript, you know, gets acquired by Adobe and Adobe just shuts it down or whatever. You know, how much risk disruption am I actually experiencing there? It's, it's very different than to say, oh, yeah, I picked a CRM. Oh, <laughs> and now yeah. that CRM has just gone away. Whoops. Um, you know, so I, 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 I think you do want to evaluate um, your vendors through the lens of, I, I, I guess, simply like if they were to go away, how much of a disruption would that be? And the one thing I would just add on to this is I think this is one of the places that true platforms in the MarTech space can provide value 
is if you get these really strong integrations between these specialist apps and the platform, one advantage is that just, you know, things like the data, you know, that happens through a particular specialist platform, if that's all ultimately being written back to your system of record, then even if at some point in time that specialist app goes away or you substitute it with something else, you know, like the, the data is still your data and you still have it, you know, in a system independent of that that you control. I think that helps a lot in sort of like the long-term ability to design for change as well. Right, and I know that one of the things that uh, I think is fairly dear to your heart also is that, you know, kind of the concept of open platform and like open API and making sure that, you know, when you invest into a tool, making sure that, you know, the data feeds back into the platform that it, you know, it integrates well with the platform to make sure that you don't create a massive um, kind of cost of bringing in that solution on top of the, the main platform, because then that also creates a little bit of the, you know, unfortunately the, the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where people are just like, they don't want to leave the, that tool afterwards because they put so much time and effort into it. And it also makes it harder to evaluate uh, products. So I think, I believe that was something that, um, that you mentioned that was like really core in, you know, the evaluation of different products that you wanted to bring in is making sure that it has you know, it's not a black box, it's fairly open and you can see what's going on. The data actually flows back to something, either the main uh, platform that you have or to some other data center that you can own. Um, but yeah, would you confirm that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, the industry, like if I look back a number of years, Right, we were kind of as an industry as at a solid D minus uh, on this front. I mean, like things were really fragmented and siloed. Uh, I think we've made a lot of progress as an industry. I'd probably give us at this point maybe more of a maybe a nice solid B. Um, but I think yeah, as an industry, we still have a lot further to go. Like it, it is clearly not yet an A plus scenario, you know, in integrations, you know, across uh, you know the Martech landscape, because like I. I pay so much attention to all these surveys again and again when like people ask you know marketers like okay where are your pain points uh with your martech stack i mean it's still always like number one or number two or number three is well integration you know and part of it is also because like you know integration is one of those words that often gets thrown around as like a black and white you know i've thrown a switch it's either integrated or it's not integrated but as of course your marketing ops audience knows, no, this is actually a spectrum. And there is a question of degree of integration. You know, there's degree of how much data is being exchanged. There's what sort of integration is happening at the workflow layer or even the UI layer, or like adherence to certain like common government standards. Um, and so when I look at the industry through that lens, I actually think still like there's a lot of runway for us to not just have more integrations, but to have deeper and richer integrations that will just make this easier for everyone. Yeah, and I think the um, you were mentioning like there was a big, um, I mean there there's a couple of big changes that happened. I think like the kind of you know we're in a more digital way of doing marketing. One of the the terms that I like out there is we talked about like there's a generation of the digital natives, right? There's also, I think now from a company standpoint, there's a generation of companies to me that are, uh, I call them data native. And it's almost like their, their whole company and their whole go to market uh, is built around this idea that they have a centralized data model that contains everything. And that's 
you know, to some extent is, is a big, big driver of how they do business. And it's important for the different tools that they try to bring in to actually uh, plug on top of that data warehouse. And so that kind of leads me to wonder, because I think this trend is, you know, is here to stay. How challenged do you feel the kind of established and maybe older uh, technologies out there, you know, like, I mean, SAP is still like, it's still big, but it's, it's kind of, I feel like, you know, slowing down, like even Salesforce, Adobe, how are those companies, you know, going to be challenged by the rise of Snowflake and the fact that so many companies now are data native and they consider, you know, Snowflake to be the data platform of choice. Mm -hmm. And then everything is like plugged on top of it from financial systems or financial reporting to uh, the MarTech stack. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic at play. I think my answer is, so there's my perspective at it from the industry level. And then I'm sure like within any individual company, um, you know, like their strategic leverage and position, they might answer it a different way. But I think if I, I just step back and look at it from the industry is I would actually credit things like um, Snowflake and, you know, this sort of like universal data layer. Uh, and then also just the flexibility of so many things being able to be uh, accessed, you know, like through APIs in the cloud is that flexibility is actually a good thing for everyone. It's even a good thing for some of the older legacy vendors in the space, because frankly, if they make the data available into you know, this open data infrastructure, you know, and they make more and more of their services available you know, through APIs, then it gives their customers enormous freedom to remix you know, the capabilities that they have with that system with the other things that they may need that they felt they weren't getting you know, from that legacy vendor. Now, does that reduce that legacy vendor's like, you know, control over those accounts? Well, yes. Um, but again, this is one of the things I think it's, and this is part of why just the dynamic of this explosion of the MarTech landscape, why it hasn't consolidated the way software used to before the cloud was just, I mean, in, in, in an earlier age, the really, I mean, like all the, all the actual operational incentives were designed towards, yep, just one massive vendor who does this all, I have a bunch of problems with one massive vendor doing it all because now they've got me over the barrel, you know, for, you know, the foreseeable future. But, you know, it's just those were the dynamics of the industry versus in the cloud. It's just things interoperate that they, they basically, I might get in trouble for saying this. I feel like they gravitationally pull towards interoperating. Not that we're perfect with it yet, but the gravitational pull is like, yeah, let's share the data. Let's share the APIs. There's no reason to have this, you know, really hard siloization that maybe had more genuine benefits 20 years ago. Right. And, and I'm curious, like from, uh, I mean, and hopefully you can talk a little bit about this, but from a, uh, you know, platform ecosystem perspective at HubSpot, how do you uh, think about the rise of you know, Snowflake and data warehouses, which I feel is a fairly recent trend, at least from a um, from you know being adopted more more generally. Um, how do you folks think about that, and and how even to you know get marketing people to think about the impact that it has for them? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to what we had started with of you know this recognition that marketing increasingly has to integrate, uh, if I may overload that word, uh, you know, with the rest of the organization. That even if 
let's say I've got all the marketing data within my CRM or marketing automation system that I need to do my actual marketing activities. Um, you know, that's, that's great, that's awesome, I'm happy. I don't necessarily need to pipe the data into something like Snowflake to, you know, change, you know, my success rate. But the truth is, right, by being able to make that data available in Snowflake so that, you know, um, data analysts, uh, you know, folks from like machine learning teams, you know, running different modelings who are perhaps working in other departments who aren't native into, you know, this tool set that we as marketers are using, that they have access to that data and they can start to find additional value out of it. And then even ultimately, right, you see this happening where then, you know, that value ultimately starts to get fed back into those systems. And all of a sudden, marketing's like, well, wait, we're not just contributing data to this greater good. We're actually getting benefit, you know, of what happens from that pool of uh, larger data back in our operational system. So I you know, for HubSpot, like, you know, our ecosystem is now, uh, we, we got quite a number of uh, the, the ELT vendors of like, you know, making it easy for customers to pull data into, you know, different uh, data warehouse uh, platforms. I think we're going to see a lot more of that just because that's where this industry seems to be headed. And yeah, generally, I think it's one of the strengths uh, of the platform. Yeah. And I love the ELT term to me, this is like, marketing and it's the best right we're reinventing a category guys it's no longer etl it's reverse etl or elt uh it's brilliant right? at the end of the day it's like there's data in one place you need to push it somewhere else just make it happen uh but i think it's brilliant right because it just creates like a lot of awareness and now people need to buy these tools and and it makes sense and that kind of uh, I mean, I guess joking aside, leads me to to one question um, that uh, to some extent is dear to my heart. But I think there's there, there's a lot of noise out there, right, on the in the martech space, and you know, and there's like thousands and thousands, as your graph shows it, of uh, of vendors out there. And so, how much do you think of um, kind of the need that exists today on the marketing side is driven from the existence of these companies and kind of these companies, you know, hammering their message of like, oh, you need to do, you need an ABM platform and you need like a PLG platform and you need like an SMS push solution that is different from your ESP and you need this and you need that. How much of it do you think, um, like maybe, you know, like a percentage wise or like even an opinion wise, how much of that is, you know, driven by vendors to create that need and how much of it is, uh, a need that actually really warrants a separate product and, and category in the market. Yeah, I mean, I could offer my opinion. I'd be curious, yeah, I mean, just what you think from your experience as well, too. But I've generally found that the hype around, particularly once you start getting into Acronym City, like I was thinking the other day, could we have a BNPL LC NC ELT tool for MAT. I, anyway, all right. <laughs> if someone in the audience gets all that, like I owe you a you know copy or a beer. But um, I don't know. I just think you know at some point, like what really motivates decision makers is a clarity of use case. I think sometimes you can almost get too over your skis when it comes to ROI. Because in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of the technologies you know we put in place are um, they don't always have like the, the most direct correlation to like, I mean, like some things like, you know, I mean, like a Google AdWords, like, hey, I spend this, I get these many, you know, leads, like, yes, it's a very clear ROI. When you're talking about capabilities that you're putting in place, there is an ROI, but it just, you know, they just become more steps in it. 
So you have to always be careful, I think, a little bit with like the ROI arguments because like, okay, yeah, you know, how many assumptions are going into that ROI model? But use cases are just really clear. You're like, listen, do you want to do X with your customers? Do you think that is valuable? You know, if the answer is yes, let us show you how this works. Here is what we would charge for that. Is that worth it to you? I don't know. I mean, I think some of the best MarTech companies out there, you know, they just are so good at explaining the use cases in clear, crisp language. It's really just obvious examples. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I get that. You know, either and then I either want that or I don't want that, but at least I understand what it is I'm getting. Right. Um, and, 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 and I guess it's fair to say that actually, uh, I hate to pick on my favorite, you know, industry, but in that whole landscape of MarTech companies, part of how I assemble that landscape is we actually visit the website of every single one of those companies as we're trying to triangulate even, you know, what category to put them in. And it's it's depressing often, like how many of those, I've, I'm a pretty savvy MarTech person. I've gone to your website, I've read every single page, and frankly, I still really have no idea what you actually do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but on the flip side is then when you go to websites of MarTech companies who like, yeah, they're just really good at explaining, uh, you know, their use cases and what they're doing. You're like, wow, that's wonderful. Why isn't everyone else doing that? Yeah, no, and, and I think it's interesting. It, it, I mean, it's one of the challenges in, in, I think, marketing ops particularly because I feel like it's a, it's a job description that is very recent and therefore, I mean, there's no study, nobody studies to become marketing ops, right? And so a lot of the education is actually coming from the vendors, um, which I think is where it's tricky. Like, the, I think a lot of the great vendors are where they are because they did a really good job at educating the professionals out there to figure out, like, this is what you should be doing, this is how you should be doing, this is how you should be thinking about it. I think the whole fact that, you know, HubSpot was so into the idea of, like, inbound marketing and how to think about content, like, this whole idea of, like, transforming the way you think about going to to market in a more scalable manner is I, I, to some extent, I think it's part of, you know, HubSpot is success because it was really trying to transform the way people thought about uh, doing marketing. And, and to some extent, I feel like the, the flip side of this is, and, and this is like one of my um, categories that it's not that I don't dislike it. I feel like ABM to me is something you do. It's not something you buy. And, and I feel like there's a lot of the tools that, I mean, a lot of the categories out there where it's more about like a frame, a way of thinking than it is a tool. Like ABM is something you do again, not something you buy. But at the end of the day, like the only way you can learn to do it is generally by buying a vendor who then brings you through an onboarding and coaches you through this. And so that's where I think there, there's this challenge where, again, like you can do ABM by doing like good, you know, targeting through, you know, AdWords and like some like really cool uh, lookalike audiences and then like having your sales team and your marketing team work together on field marketing and all that good stuff. But the, the ABM solutions kind of package it together and come with a methodology, which I think is something that's lacking out there in the in modern marketing and I think even more on the marketing ops side. No, I think that's fair. And it's actually interesting. I'm thinking of my own experience. Um, you know, uh, over a number of years, I'd uh, programmed the uh, agenda for the MarTech conference. Um, and one of the things that is always frustrating in programming that is very often, like for a particular topic, the best 
person to actually speak about that with someone who was working at one of the vendors in that space because i mean let's face it they basically spent a career like thinking about how do we do this how does this work what are these dynamics um but the challenge was all too often too many vendors when they in a conference you know speaking in an editorial session I don't know, it's like some switch like flips off in their brain and it's like, yes. So now let me explain to you why you should buy our product. Um, and, and again, I, this isn't them all. Uh, and I've had a number of speakers who did a marvelous job of not falling into that mode. But I think it's, my, my point there is, I think that's actually the broader dynamic you see just in marketing in the MarTech space itself is it's really easy for vendors to get into a mode where they're marketing themselves less than they're actually educating on like, okay, what is this new use, use case is my thing. Like, what are the use cases you want to do? Why do you want to do them? How would you do them? You know, and being able to like explain it in a level that the light bulb goes off for people and say like, yes, I get what you're, what you're doing here. Uh, and then there's a, at that point, then it's a level of like, oh, well, why should I do that with you? Are there other tools out there that let me do that too? But if you can't get the use cases clear in people's heads, <sighs> yeah, boy, that, I mean, something you said there in your question about, um, you know, okay, well, now that I'm in the onboarding process, I'm learning how this thing actually works. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, if you're like, you're learning how it works in the onboarding process, <laughs> like it's too late. <laughs> Not to say that doesn't happen, but that yeah. is clearly a bad time to learn like, oh. <laughs> no, so that's what you meant by this. Um, and, but I feel it. Like, I mean, it is something that's challenging. And actually I do want to answer uh, Frank's question, which I think is like works in this way, and maybe I'll, I'll change. I mean, there's two two yes parts to the question, right? One is like the main question is like, okay, so you're comfortable with the the setup that you have, and like how do you go above and beyond, kind of just like pipeline, like you start investing into brand awareness and share your voice, and and maybe the the question beyond that is when you don't know, how do you find out, right? Because I, I think one of the biggest challenges in marketing, again, I was talking about this. There's not necessarily like a school or like some form of like, I guess, canon of what should be done in the modern age of marketing, especially in a time of COVID and, and drastic change. So how, how do people think about this? And, and yeah, where do you find answers to questions like these of like, should you invest in like brand awareness or voice um, or, or tech? Yeah, no, um, it's a, it's yeah. An excellent point. Um, so, there's an answer to this. It's just, it's almost like the integration question. It's like, we kind of know what the answer is and we're kind of making some progress in that direction, but we know we've got further to go. And that is ultimately, this has to be professional communities, you know, of marketing ops folks where those communities are outside of the domain of a single vendor, you know? And again, I say this, you know, working at HubSpot, I think HubSpot is a great community. I think we do a great job of educating, uh, you know, the folks who work with us. Um, you know, I mean, Salesforce has a great, you know, program. Which, I mean, there's definitely a, a place in the world for that, but I think there is also a really valuable place for whether it's through conferences or, you know, professional organizations or communities of just, you know, marketing ops peers to be able to engage with each other and have an exchange of insight and practice. And 
yeah, reputations of, you know, who they've dealt with and, you know, what that experience was like that, yeah, I mean, again, even, even I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you guys uh, have a spot in the MarTech universe too, but it's like, you know, these sorts of, you know, chats just with, um, yeah, practitioners, um, you know, and letting other folks just be able to come in and ask their questions and hear that and not filtering that, but really just trying to like facilitate more of that exchange of experience. Yeah. And I think this is one of the, I mean, at least from, from my experience, right? So I, I actually, I spoke at Inbound, uh, I don't know, like everything's a blur since COVID, but like a couple of years ago, let's say. Uh, and, and I actually, one of the things that I really liked about the, the conference and it was a lot of small um, breakout sessions where you would go into a room, you'd have, you know, companies, and we actually presented with um, Envision and we were kind of explaining like something that we did for them to, you know, to help them think about how do you do um, PQLs at the account level in a PLG context, right? Because like mm -hmm. having one analyst at Facebook super active in your product doesn't mean that Facebook is ready to, you know, to find an enterprise deal with you. And so how do you think about that and how do you structure it into your different CRM and process and, and all that stuff? So it was more thought leadership really than, you know, pitching either like one product or the other. And what was really cool is that then there was a bunch of people who came up to us and they're asking questions. And I think to your point, right, that community is so important because whatever people talk about on stage or things like that, it, it is one specific use case and one specific context around it and one way of implementing it. But at the end of the day, your use case or your the context for your context for mm -hmm. the use case is always going to be different. So being able to go and interact with people and get their opinion on how they would think about it, I think is is absolutely critical. And so whatever folks can do to, you know, go out there and actually talk about, you know, with other professionals, like this is my very specific problem. How would you address it? It helps hear about new products, new categories, new things that you could go and, and play around with um, that I think otherwise it's just like very, very hard to, uh, to discover. Yeah. And I, and I think, Truth, I mean, you made the point here, right? I mean, this is still actually a really new profession, um, you know, and so it, things like communities and, uh, you know, the professional mechanisms by which, you know, peers interact, those are always like a lagging development, you know, in any like uh, new profession. And so I expect here over this next 10 years, as this profession is maturing, as its ranks continue to swell, um, there will be a lot of just like inherent momentum towards creating more of those um, environments, uh, you know, in which, uh, you know, it's really more peer-to-peer -peer based learning. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess like maybe uh, switching gears a tiny bit, right? One, uh, one kind of thought I have, and, and I'm just really curious to get your take on this, is I do feel like we're getting to a point, we're talking about like CIO and CMO, I do feel like we're getting to a point in the market where it is going to be essential for CMOs to have a data strategy. Um, and, you know, data strategy is a pretty vague term on purpose because it can mean different things. But um, I think up until now, you know, the CIO and CTOs kind of own that data strategy. Where do we store the data? Who's able to access it? How do we structure it in the background? Um, and I think, you know, marketing being more and more dependent on access and insights on top of the data that is being stored um, to run their job, they're so dependent on it that it's critical that CMOs start thinking about their data strategy and actually having one. So I'm curious about your take on this and, and if you see this kind of growing as, if the awareness for this is growing on the market. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, this is just a, a correlation, you know, with what we were talking about earlier of like, uh, you know, the rise in popularity of, you know, things like Snowflake or whatnot and the aggregation of data uh, across the business and the enterprise. It's like, okay, well, that's awesome, but it's like, okay, <laughs> this is a lot of data, you know? So now all the questions of like, well, what's the structure of this data? What's the metadata? You know, like, are, do we have shared like definitions of what things are? Do I know where things are located for what they are? Um, you know, and how that ladders up to your point of like, okay, well, even beyond like the, the data structures, like what's the, what's the kind of data, you know, that either I'm in a position to contribute to the business or I want to consume, you know, from the rest of the business. Um, and again, I don't think like CMOs have to be just like they don't have to be marketing technologists, you know, they don't have to be data architects either. Um, but I think there's this combination of, first of all, just recognizing to your point, this is, this is really important. This is where the game is being played. Um, second, as a result of that, like, you know, you're going to want talent. Uh, in the organization that is actually capable of doing this. And whether that's talent that's in the marketing org or talent in the IT org, I think there's a variety of ways in which that's being distributed. The answer is probably both. Um, but then the CMO needs to be able to be engaged with it at the level of you know, really understanding the strategic view of what sort of data they want the value. And even the, ultimately like what the strategy is moving forward as the primary uh, interface to the customer of like new data that's going to be coming in. And as we start to engage with customers through new channels, making sure that that lens of, okay, well, what sort of data is going to come out of that channel and how do we leverage that both in ways that are compliant and ethical, you know, but also ultimately then create value for uh, the company and customers too. I mean. God, this stuff is just so much fun. I mean, like, how do you, I, like, this is, you know, I, I, I felt like for the past 10 years, like, oh, wow, this MarTech thing, this is awesome. This is great. And yeah, but, you know, we'll be done. And they'll be like, yes, yeah, so this is great. We discovered it. It's, you know, the new, it's the new world. And now we've populated it. We're done. No. Oh, my goodness. The stuff that's come in the past 10 years was like, you know, like the very beginning, you know, of what we are now on the precipice of here for the next 10 years. And man, people are marketing ops. I like, I'm not just <laughs> clearly enthusiastic about this, but I think it's just the coolest job because you are like right at the center uh, of yeah. making all this stuff happen. And yeah, there's a ton of innovation going in there and there's an opportunity, I think, you know, being early on in, in any kind of area is super exciting because you get to be a pioneer and like you get to also like, you know, con cont contribute to defining what the, the space is going to look like. Um, and yeah, I guess like a, a point on the, uh, you know, on, on the CMOs kind of needing this, uh, this data structure, I mean, data strategy, sorry, like one of the, the things and you mentioned, right, it's like thinking about like people that you need in and like processes and one of the, the challenges that I see in the market, and this goes back to you know, the explosion of, of MarTech tools out there, is that a lot of people, unfortunately, start compensating lack of strategy with abundance of technology, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's why I have, like, to some extent, a bit of a pet peeve sometimes with, like, ABM solutions, because very often they come in as kind of a standalone tool that is, is really there to compensate a lack of strategy or a lack of alignment. I think, like, predictive 
um, sorry, predictive lead scoring tools. Also, to some extent, we're playing this where ah, we have like misalignment between sales and marketing. Let's like just slap some technology on top of that bad boy and everything's going to be great because the machine is telling us that this is the right way to look at our leads. But ultimately, I mean, there, there's a lack of strategy there of figuring out how you want to align those two teams and, and what you can put in place to do that. And then if you have that overall strategy, at least the, the idea of using um, predictive lead scoring becomes one part of that strategy rather than, you know, hoping it to be the, the solution to, to all the problems. So I think we have seen this in the past. Um, and, and that problem, I think, is, is just becoming bigger and bigger with like more and more data living outside of the realm of marketing and marketing struggling more and more to get access to it and being so dependent on, on CIOs. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just nodding yeah. uh, enthusiastically. I think the pattern, uh, you know, and obviously this has been taken in a number of cases to being the joke of, I think Tom Fishburne, marketunist has, you know, like the, you know, marketers who are like, oh, look, squirrel, you know. Um, there's some of that reputation, perhaps not undeserved, um, but um, I don't know. I kind of feel like, yeah, this, this idea that for the most part, you want strategy to precede technology and the recognition that technology is just one piece of the classic process people technology triangle for implementing that. I think the only thing I push back a bit occasionally is I feel like that's true for, say, 90%. Uh, of what you're trying to do. But one of the challenges we have is the technology environment in which our business is competing is actually changing very rapidly. Um, you know, And like, if you get too focused in this mode of saying, okay, strategy precedes technology, I don't even wanna hear about technology unless if it's something that aligns very specifically with my strategy, sort of shuts the door on saying, you know, there might be innovations and technologies that are happening out here that as I become aware of them would influence my decision about what my strategy should be. And I think you want some mechanism to be able to have that exploratory feedback. It's gotta be in check. It's gotta be like a small percentage of, of the whole. You don't want those out of whack, but I, I, I do always feel like the need to defend that, you know, some of that exploratory innovation is, mm -hmm. Yeah, but and I think, merge. And I think that's why I say the, the CMO needs a data strategy because to me, the, the ability or there is a strategy that is required in choosing, you know, you talked about like, okay, you need a platform and you need to make sure that this platform actually has an ecosystem, integrates with stuff. That to me is part of the data strategy because you're realizing if I want to be able to, you know, learn quickly, I need to have something that can quickly plug on top of my main you know, whatever data frame, and if it's like whatever platform you use, and if you use a platform that is this black box that has no external integrations, and all you're kind of in this vendor lock where all you can use is like you know, um, Evil Corp systems, and you can only use Evil Corp ESP and Evil Corp CRM, then you're kind of done, right? That kills your innovation. So that's why I think the the idea of you know figuring out does your platform allow for like quick uh, implementations and testing of other tools is so critical because if you don't have that, you're going to die because like technology is constantly moving and you need to have as part of your strategy, you know, testing, testing is, is, is critical in marketing. You have to, to test, but you need to have your, um, your technology set up to allow for testing. And that to me is, is why I talk about this, um, data strategy, because 
you know, it is a big part of, of being successful is making sure that you're set up for, you know, for your team to, to be able to try. Yep. No, I, uh, one of the things I've, uh, advised many uh, folks are, you know, like I get asked very often about like stack design and how should I think about which tool? And to me, like the first principle is design for change. You know, you don't know what you don't know, uh, that's going to be different two years, three years, five years from now. And I think, to me, yeah, in, in my brain, I connect that with, you know, what you're advocating here on the data strategy of just being in a position that as we experiment with new stuff and change, like it's happening in the context of a framework to make sure that, yeah, we were actually able to track this, we're able to get the value out of it, um, that it's not, uh, yeah, just a thousand things blossoming completely in their own, you know, separate little uh, ponds. Right. Yeah, and then, and then you end up in the, the beautiful world of revenue attribution when you're trying to figure out from the ROI perspective what you can attribute to each one of them, and they all have a different way of tracking stuff. So it becomes a nightmare. And I guess, and, and maybe you've already given the answer to this, but uh, I'm curious, like, I mean, a question I'm sure, sure you get asked a lot is how, how should people think about designing, like, a winning MarTech stack? Like, what are kind of the, um, the ingredients for the recipe for, uh, you know, the Scott Brinker-approved martech stack yeah i would not be uh yeah so egotistical as to imagine that like yes i would have one master stack plan that one size fits all it's perfect it really is so dependent not just on your business like in the sense of like what you're trying to accomplish who you're engaging with but even quite frankly just the maturity you know like if you've if you're a company that has a certain like a, a a tech savvy set of you know like resources on your team sort of what's accessible to you and what you might push the boundaries on are, are, are i think are very different like i mean the snowflake stuff's a great example i mean it's like yes getting all this data into a common data warehouse and then being able to you know run you know more advanced uh, analytics and data science work i mean this is awesome but like yeah if you're just starting out that may actually get you in more trouble. It, it may push you further away from actually delivering value, you know, to like, Hey, listen, I've got to, I've got get customers, win them, engage them, you know, uh, I'll start with something much simpler. So yeah, it, it, it's hard to give the universal stack answer other than I do think just coming back to what we said earlier, this idea of distinguishing between the foundation and the things you layer on top of that foundation is spend a lot of, and make the investment in thinking very carefully about your foundation. Uh, and if you do nothing else, get that one foundation, something that you're happy with, something that right. you're like, okay, yes, I can do a lot. I can get a lot of value out of this. It works the way I want. And I vetted it to know that it's open and extensible so that as other needs come, uh, I will be able to layer them on top. Um, yeah, there's a, I think, that, I mean, there's a good uh, decision framework that I, I know uh, I like to use it a lot is the concept of revolving doors, right? And I think it's similar to what you were talking about initially, right? But there, there are decisions of like bringing tools into your stack that are revolving doors where, you know, you can mm -hmm. easily go back if it doesn't work out. And there are others that actually have a massive cost where you could almost consider it a one-way kind of door. And definitely like, you know, the, the core kind of platform that you're going to bring in, you're deciding that you have to now migrate from one CRM or marketing automation platform to another, that is like a multi-month long project. So that's not a revolving door. 
but deciding to try out like one widget on your website, you know, no, no offense to, to widgets out there. It, it's something that is fairly easy to remove and then to, to add back on again. It's, it's relatively low effort on the engineering side. And so even just understanding from a, you know, you were saying like there's the, the cost benefits perspective, right? Like how much benefits can we expect? And that should kind of set a max level of what is the effort that it's going to take to test, but also potentially, you know, remove if we realize that the test was not conclusive. Yep. No, I, 100%. I'm with you. <laughs> and, and so I guess like one, uh, and I have a couple more, but like this, another one that I know like comes up a lot in uh, the world of, of MarTech. So I guess the, the question is like, is, do you have at least for yourself a framework that you would recommend people start using when they think about like the build versus buy versus both? Like there's a lot of these conversations again with the CIOs and you know, you were talking about, oh, running models on, you know, having data scientists that run models for marketing. It's kind of like dear to my heart because this is the way we are trying to allow marketers to run their models themselves without needing data scientists or any kind of like machine learning uh, knowledge or, or whatnot. So I guess like how, what is the framework that you would recommend people use when, you know, they're, they, they know they have a need, they've identified that they want to do something and there's a discussion internally of, oh, actually, like we could have some engineers build this. Versus like, yeah, there's like a vendor out there that we know is a decently good fit and we would have to go buy the solution. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a framework I, I use a lot, but it's a little bit different than uh, answering that specific one. So let me answer the specific question and then I'll share the framework too if uh, you're interested. But um, my view has always been to lean towards buy overbuild with the caveat that you can extend it um, and that what you are buying is a essential I've commoditized is almost uh, the extreme end of it but like I don't know like a great example would be something like if you're thinking of like building your own email delivery service at this point, just stop and, and just consider that very carefully. And by the way, for what it's worth, I will say this as a fellow who in a previous life built his own email, like yeah. delivery. Yeah. Guilty also. I, I, I've okay, been there right. also. <laughs> and, and maybe there was a time where that made sense, or maybe I was just young and had no idea what I was doing. E either way. But I think at this point in time, right, I mean, like, it just, there's so much out there in the form of, um, you know, the cloud platforms of what you can get from AWS and, you know, Google Cloud, you know, the API services platforms from companies like, you know, Twilio and Stripe, and then even, right, the, the app platforms, you know, like HubSpot and Salesforce that just, you know, have these incredibly rich APIs that as much of that as you can leverage, and then the layer that you're building is really just the thinnest layer of what is unique to your business, what you're not gonna get generically, you know, out of the box. I think for most companies, that's the right way to think about it. I mean, if you're if you're Netflix, if you're Uber, you know, I've chatted with folks at those companies who have absolutely built from the ground up some of their own right. stacks, and maybe actually what they're doing, that, that's right, but, Boy, 99.999% of the cases, I don't think that's the strategy you want yeah. to take. Yeah, one thing that I, I talk a lot about in these confessions, I feel, is the similarities between product management and marketing ops, because I think that there's the same thing where you're very close to the engineering and close to putting the things together, mm -hmm. and you're also 
supposed to be the person who translates the business requirements from marketing and go-to-market into kind of a set of technical requirements that can be executed by a different tool. And one of the, I think, at least one of the articles that I keep on constantly referring to in the product management side is this article titled, You Are Not Google. And the whole idea of it is that the scale of Google or LinkedIn that led them to build some of the tools that they have. So you think of like Kafka, which is their messaging, uh, backend messaging system for, um, yeah, for LinkedIn. They built it because they were getting billions of messages in their queue every day. Like five, 10, maybe a hundred companies out there have that scale today. You're very likely not one of them. And so making sure that you don't make technology choices based on what you read in Crunchbase or, or sorry, on TechCrunch or, or one of those like publications where it only talks about the big companies is really critical because then you can go down that route of thinking that, you know, you're going to have to build things like Uber or Netflix or whatever when it's not the case. Most companies can do with, you know, a good email service provider that's already out there. Yep. And I think the truth is, I mean, like to then, because it, it all comes down to a question of uh, um, what's the economic uh, term for that opportunity cost. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, there probably are things actually I want to build that are going to be unique for my business. And I think it's very much at that customer experience layer. I mean, like, you know, again, like we can look at websites, it's like the classics. I mean, how many websites do you go to that they still kind of suck, um, you know, and you just run into these frustrations. Like this is a layer where almost by definition, the experience, you know, there has to be unique to your company, right? It just starts to get so deeply entwined with what you're actually delivering and what, you know, the, 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 the digital customer experience is like invest that energy and effort there. And if you're instead wasting those resources, you know, on things that are capabilities to support that, that you can get off, the open market. Yeah, it just but how, <laughs> how, how the world for custom development, just yeah, direct right. it where it should be. But how, how do you justify that? Because I mean, this is something that I, you know, like, people struggle with out there where, you know, the CTO is saying, Oh, but no, but like, we have engineers who could build this in two days, it's not a problem. And you know, and then the CEO is saying, Oh, well, if we have two people who can build it, why are we considering paying $100,000 a year to have it? Uh, how like, yeah, what can you use to push back on that? Because it always seems, it's, you know, it's this thing where like people think they're 10 times better than they are and they think whoever they're looking at is 10 times worse than they are. So it creates this kind of like 100x ratio constantly. Um, how can, yeah, MOPS professionals kind of combat that a little bit and, and make sure that they can bring in tools that are going to actually help them and not slow them down? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, I mean, it, <laughs> Like aside from all the literature and all of known history of software development, <laughs> right? I mean, like, I don't know of anything that actually has been yeah, built in two days that then like, oh, well, that was it. It just worked perfectly and nobody ever went back to it. I think almost any company at any size has done any engineering whatsoever, right? I mean, tech debt is just, I mean, it's not just a well-documented phenomenon in the world. The moment you develop any software of any kind for any purpose yourself, wait a few months and you will, oh, yes, this is tech debt because now I want to change this, but these folks who would change that are already now other committed to something else. And what do I do? Do I yank them off of that? And then like, where, you know, and so I, I, I suspect actually, and I, I might be wrong here, uh, but I suspect, yeah, I mean, just as you get with more experienced, you know, CTOs and CIOs, 
they know these dynamics, you know, really well. And so I think, you know, it, 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 if you really look at the full loaded costs and you say, okay, the full loaded costs of really building and supporting and maintaining this versus the commercial solution is both A, yes, clearly in the column that we should just build this, which makes me highly suspicious of who you're looking in your vendor set that you're comparing against. Um, but also, again, going back to the opportunity cost, it's not just like, oh, well, could we build this? It's the recognition that if we are building this, and even if you know we could save some money from what we would you know get off the open market, if the opportunity cost of what I'm not able to spend those resources doing, you know, I mean, I could spend my day, like I could get a cow and I could like milk it, you know, and it would, I don't know, maybe if I drank enough milk, it would be cheaper than buying it at the store, but you know, wouldn't get very far in my MarTech career, that's for sure. <laughs> I love that. And and we're, we're at time and I think this is a perfect analogy to, to end on. So Scott, thank you very much for joining us and not, you know, uh, taking time away from milking your cow to actually talk about MarTech today. Uh, this was awesome. I hope everyone uh, that was out here uh, enjoyed the conversation as well. Um, next week, we are very excited to have Jareen uh, Eris from Reciprocity, who's going to be joining us. Uh, I think it'll be another awesome session. We'll be sending out the recording because I think this was uh, packed with insights and probably kind of requires some time to go over it. We're both very passionate about the space. so. Hopefully that, that kind of showed. Um, so Scott, yeah, all that's left for me to do is to thank you again uh, a ton for joining us uh, and looking forward to keeping the conversation going. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you very soon.